brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Happy days are here again, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and despite the draconian dystopian nightmare of a year 2020 has turned out to be, I would urge you to enjoy yourself while you still can. Because mandatory masks are pretty tame compared to mandatory vaccines, the digital data collection, surveillance, and social media power flexes we've seen so far are nothing compared to the 5G-fueled contact tracing Internet of Everything takeover, and Ghislaine Maxwell is not half the threat that her sisters seem to be. Yes, it's like all the concerning threads we've been following lead to a full-on level change of intensity and trouble before they'll ever come close to fizzling out, and an already complex world is becoming all the more confusing by unleashed AI, a full-court press and biotech control, and a vast digital overlay that's true power has yet to be seen. So like I said, we should have some fun while we still can, and that's exactly why I brought back the ever-knowledgeable powerhouse guest Whitney Webb to talk about all these things and more. You probably know Whitney from her deep and thorough coverage of the Epstein saga and her expose on the conspiratorial connections and seedy networks he was a part of. She is currently a staff writer for The Last American Vagabond, who previously wrote for Mint Press News and Ben Swan's Truth and Media. Whitney is also the very deserving 2019 winner of the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism and has launched a great new website recently at unlimitedhangout.com. So let's do the damn thing. The great web detangler, network exposer, and thorn in the side of the big machine. Whitney, welcome back to THC. Hey, it's great to be back. Yes, it is a real pleasure. Thanks for doing it. I definitely enjoyed talking to you last time about the Epstein Network and the work you've added to that stack on Ghislaine and her siblings gets even more concerning. But we wanted to start with your latest article, Meet the IDF-linked cybersecurity group, quote-unquote, protecting U.S. hospitals pro bono. And I think people know that nobody at this level really does anything for free. And to quote that article, you write, Anonymous volunteers from an opaque group 
founded by a former commander of Israeli's Unit 8200, have been granted access to some of the most critical private and public networks in the U.S.'s healthcare and pharmaceutical sectors with the help of a U.S. federal agency now run by a former Microsoft executive. And what a way to start. We're already getting a few big hits on the conspiratorial bingo cards out there. But (laughs) tell us about this COVID-19 Cyber Threat Intelligence League. What should people know? Right. So the CTI League was allegedly anyway set up by these four self-described cybersecurity professionals earlier this year as the coronavirus pandemic started to really explode in terms of governments reacting to it around March or so. And they claim to be doing this because of the uptick in cyber attacks that have been observed on hospitals and healthcare system infrastructure as the pandemic has unfolded. Even when these events are reported on, a big part of that is also the fact that there have been a lot of budget cuts to hospitals, both before and during the current coronavirus crisis that have led a lot of IT staffers to been laid off. The other side of that, of course, being that HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, has really used the pandemic to consolidate control over how patient data is handled in U.S. hospitals, clinics, and healthcare facilities, basically consolidating control over patient data by HHS itself or a series of contractors, the main one of which is very secretive and has only really existed since the September 11th era, since 2001, and has been contracting with HHS ever since. Basically, these cybersecurity professionals were claiming to fulfill this void left by the lack of, you know, IT staffers protecting them. They offer their services for free, and they are now directly partnered with the U.S. government, as well as U.S. law enforcement agencies. Their main partner in the U.S. government is a relatively new agency overseen by DHS called CISA, which is currently headed by a guy named Chris Krebs, who used to be Microsoft's vice president for cybersecurity before he was chosen to fill that role. And it's very interesting that half of the four founding members of the CTI League are also Microsoft cybersecurity researchers and workers that run its security research center. Mm. Yeah, this is so interesting because I think people have heard whispers of cyber attacks this year with so much going on. It's hard to even get down to that level, but I don't think people have heard the extent of what's going on. You write, over the past several months, 80% of healthcare institutions in the U.S. have reported being targeted by some sort of cyber attack, ranging from minor to severe, with an uptick in phishing attempts and spam specifically. Most of these attempts have been aimed at illegally acquiring troves of patient data, ding, 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 Right. including the recent hacks of hospitals in Chicago and Utah. About 20% of the hacks and cyber attacks reported by hospitals and medical facilities since March directly affected the facility's capacity to function optimally with a much smaller percentage of those, including ransomware attacks. I mean, this sounds like a big problem. But there are reasons to believe that these are sort of false flag attacks being blamed on foreign nations, right? Yeah, well, I certainly think that's possible. One reason I didn't really mention in the article is the fact that all this focus on patient data, not just by the federal government, like I mentioned by HHS, it's also been a huge focus of Silicon Valley, which is currently in this huge, I guess you could call it, cold war of sorts 
over artificial intelligence, trying to get as much data as possible and beat Chinese AI companies. Microsoft is at the center of that. And of course, here they are basically offering their quote unquote services for free to all these healthcare institutions, while at the same time you have the federal agency in charge of protecting critical electronic infrastructure in the United States, including the healthcare system and the voting system, all being run by a former Microsoft executive. And then on the other side of this, we also have another figure who is basically the original founder of the CTI League and its most public face, its spokesperson as well, a guy named Ohad Zadenberg, who currently works for the cybersecurity firm based in Israel called Clear Sky, but he is a former commander in Unit 8200. He started off in that unit as an analyst of Persian cyber activity, meaning Iran, right? And then later became a commander in that unit, overseeing, I think, you know, almost 100 soldiers all focused on Iran specifically. He claims to still focus on Iran as a strategic intelligence target and has actually been at the center and often the sole source of accusations that have linked Iran's government to cyber attacks in the past, most recently the hack of Gilead Pharmaceuticals and its antiviral drug Remdesivir, which has been recommended and used against coronavirus since this really started back in March. It's also worth pointing out, too, that Gilead has a lot of ties to the U.S. establishment, specifically the Pentagon. It used to be headed by Donald Rumsfeld. What's interesting is that the timing of this hack, which was discovered by Zadenberg and allegedly thwarted by him, is that Gilead is part of this consortium of several pharmaceutical companies, of which Gilead is one that is also partnered with CTI lead. Hmm. Wow. And yeah, you get into such detail about uh, the companies that Zadenberg has worked for. I guess they always are changing their name. It's, it's always uh, confusing, this kind of stuff. But this long history of fraud and espionage targeting the U.S. federal government, and it's just a very concerning history and when you fold in that history, it's like, well, what are they doing now? Probably they're not up to any good. Right. I definitely think that's a fair conclusion to draw from what we're looking at. I mean, it's very rare that cybersecurity professionals at major high paying companies that make like six figures a year would just suddenly be like, yeah, we're going to do this stuff for free, especially an ex-Unit 8200 member. The salaries offered to them for their private startups and things like that. I mean, this is reported on Israeli media all the time that they are offered, you know, astronomical figures per hour of their time. And so it's just kind of odd that they would offer all this stuff to free. And of course, they're also advertising the fact that they're focusing on healthcare institutions. But more recently, they have been seeking to help protect other critical infrastructure in the United States, like dams, Iran and Clear Sky, Ohad Zadenberg's company, have also accused Iran of hacking a dam in New York not that long ago. It's worth pointing that out. They're also looking to, quote unquote, protect nuclear reactors and a bunch of other aspects of U.S. infrastructure, which is, you know, just kind of odd that this is all being sort of approved of essentially by the U.S. government being done in partnership with them. But, you know, what's weird is that I've been talking about these four founding members, right? But no one knows who the other members are. CTI League has 1,400 members right now, estimated, according to their own figures. 
coming from a bunch of different countries around the world. And basically all you had to do to get in is to sign up and your entrance into the group is approved by one of the four founding members who were, you know, Microsoft or, you know, ex-Unit 8200 still currently working with a company with links to Israel's government, right? So any of those guys can just say, yeah, come on in and give them entrance to the operations of this league, which, as I said earlier, is, you know, partnered with a lot of key parts of critical health infrastructure in the U.S. and is seeking to expand that now. They're also involved in helping the government fight against disinformation, right, related to COVID-19, which includes things like people organizing because they oppose quarantine measures or mask measures, things like that, which, of course, could very well be organic and not disinfo campaigns tied to a state actor, given a lot of the stuff that's been going on over the past several months in relation to information that's come out about mask mandates, about, you know, are lockdowns really worth it, among other things, it's basically suggesting that that's all made up <laughs> from their perspective. Wow. And on the Microsoft side of the CTI League, you do mention in that article, Nate Warfield and Chris Mills, who both work for the Microsoft Security Response Center. And you say that it is worth noting that the Microsoft Security Response Center is also directly affiliated with Microsoft's Election Guard, a voting machine software program that was developed by companies closely tied to the Pentagon's infamous research brand DARPA and Israeli Military Intelligence Unit 8200 and creates several risks to voting security despite claiming it makes it safer. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that I try to talk to people about when they really aren't into conspiracy. It's like, look at Bill Gates and all the things that he has put his money into, one of them being reworking software-based education. And surprise, surprise, where is one of the big battlegrounds right now? It's like the classroom. And right. a year ago, there was no justification for this software-based learning. And all of a sudden there is. And he's all over the health side of it too. Right. Now we're talking about election machines. And uh, that's just another scary pie for his fingers to be in. Right. Well, also election guard, right? is already partnered with several voting machine manufacturers throughout the United States. And what's also concerning is that, as I mentioned earlier, this Chris Krabs guy who's in charge of this DHS overseeing agency on critical infrastructure, right, is one of the key people in government currently lobbying for election guard to be adopted in the United States. Of course, we can pretty much see it now, right, that the 2020 election is going to be a total chaotic clusterfuck and free-for-all. Right. So I think it will eventually end up being a proposed, quote unquote, solution by government and people like Krebs and Microsoft and whatever. The use of election guard because of, you know, the mail in voting not working or, you know, accusations of fraud and things like that, that we already know are going to happen in this year's election because they've essentially told us. Right. So. The more chaotic it is this election, right, the more solutions they have to propose for subsequent elections if there are subsequent elections. So it seems like Election Guard is well poised to benefit from that. Yes, good point. And to go back a little bit to Zadenberg and Clear Sky, you mentioned that there was an FBI security alert earlier this year that cited only Clear Sky and Zadenberg for these claims of linking Iran's government to all these cyber attacks we're having. And to quote that, you say, 
Media reports failed to mention the extreme extent to which Iran itself has been the subject of cyber attacks over the course of 2020. For instance, in February, a cyber attack took down an estimated 25% of Iran's internet, with some alleging U.S. involvement in a similar attack that had targeted Iran just months prior. More recently, a series of several mysterious fires and other acts of industrial sabotage across Iran over the past few months have been linked to Israeli intelligence operations. In some cases, Israeli officials have acknowledged the Zionist state's role in these events. It's like, man, blame <laughs> blame the person that is actually a victim of the things that you're doing on both sides. And we've talked to guests before who tried to draw attention to this concern of Israel exporting their software to many other countries and basically taking control over their critical infrastructure, as you mentioned. And this seems to be the evidence of at least its capabilities being tested in Iran. Right. Well, I mean, so Iran has been a known and admitted target, Unit 8200, and also the NSA. The NSA and Unit 8200, for example, worked together to produce Stuxnet, probably the best well-known cyber attack of you know the past 20 years that targeted facilities in Iran, nuclear facilities, right, and totally, you know, disrupted their function. And, you know, what we've been seeing going on now, these acts of industrial sabotage, I guess you could say fires, not just at, you know, nuclear power facilities, but also like at grain storage sites, you know, food, <laughs> food stores, essentially, yeah, yeah. you know, also being targeted. And you're also having People like Yossi Cohen, who's the current head of Mossad, essentially leaking to Israeli media that, yes, it's Israeli intelligence that's doing these things to Iran. It's kind of disconcerting. If you look at the U.S. side, though, a country that isn't ostensibly considered to be a target of Israel's aggressive electronic espionage tactics, you look at, you know, the New York power grid, for example. The key dams in New York's power infrastructure are now powered by a company called Impress which is a wholly owned subsidiary of a state-owned Israeli weapons company that produced Iron Dome. <laughs> so, I mean, that doesn't seem to be, I mean, that's a foreign military company, right? It's basically like a foreign, you know, I don't know, any other country outside the U.S. being like, yeah, we're going to have our dams guarded by Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. I mean, it yeah. just doesn't seem like something you would do for national security purposes. But instead in New York, you know, we're seeing things like that, you know, expand to a considerable degree, largely through, you know, edicts, I guess you could say from New York's governor Cuomo, who also has put people like Bill Gates and Google's Eric Schmidt in charge of reimagining life in the state there. Yes. Yeah. I was going to definitely uh, ask you about that too, but there have been so many explosions this year, random explosions. Yes. Um, even here in San Diego, a Navy ship caught fire and burned for like four days. I could smell it miles away. And it's like, how many of these are related to some kind of digital attack, some kind of software-based attack, and how many are just organic accidents? And it makes you wonder because you can look at these... Um, you know, photos where people have compiled all the weird explosions and it's a lot. It's a lot for only being halfway through this year. And so this is where we get to an interesting punchline to this detailed setup 
But we have this COVID-19 Cyber Threat Intelligence League and a wave of cyber attacks being blamed on Iran. And then, to quote you again, a lot of quotes, coincidentally, phosphorus, as Microsoft calls them, is also the group at the center of the Iranian hacker allegations promoted by ClearSky and Zadenberg, which refers to the same group by the name Charming Kitten. The overlap is not very surprising given Microsoft's longstanding ties to Israelis Unit 8200, as well as the fact that Microsoft as a company and its two co-founders, Paul Allen and Bill Gates, personally ensured the success of an Israeli intelligence-linked tech company then led by Isabel Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell's sister, who boasts close ties to Israel's national security state. It's like, wow. I mean, now we're off to the races, looping in the Maxwell family. But we talked about her dad in the past and the Promise Software scandal. Right. And of course, the second generation is also involved in this very same stuff. And here's Microsoft's founders being the ones who are kind of championing this uh, this company and rising them to the top. It's like, what is going on here? Right. Well, the involvement of Bill Gates and also Paul Allen in preventing the collapse, essentially, of a company, Israeli company led by Isabel Maxwell, that all took place in the late 90s and early 2000s. But we do know that Bill Gates was associated with Epstein to some extent by as early as 1995. And that a 2001 article from the UK's Evening Standard reported Epstein having made millions of dollars from his business links with Bill Gates. This has been completely ignored by mainstream media and also most of independent media, oddly enough. So what were those business ties? We don't exactly know, though in 1995, around this period of time, Ghislaine Maxwell's two sisters, who are twins, are Christine and Isabel. They had a company along with their two ex-husbands called the McKinley Group, which has this, this search engine sometimes referred to as the first search engine called Magellan. It actually ended up having several deals, very lucrative deals with Microsoft in 1995. What hasn't been reported about that company is that Ghislaine Maxwell was a major, had a major stake in that company. And in the late 90s, frequently referred to herself as a quote, internet operator when asked by the press about her job. This is, of course, before any of her activities with Epstein related to sexual blackmail or human trafficking had gotten any sort of attention at all. And these were press people asking her about her activities in relation to, you know, you like UK tabloids that would occasionally write articles about the Maxwell family in relation to the notoriety, I guess you could say, of their father, Robert Maxwell, right? So at some point, the person responsible for hammering out that deal between the McKinley Group and Microsoft, that would have been Isabel Maxwell, who is the vice president of the company and engaged in those types of deals with different partners, company partners during that time, right? So at some point, she becomes the head of this president of this company called ComTouch, which is Israeli created by former IDF guys and largely funded by the first venture capital fund set up as part of as an Israeli government program that was about investing more in high tech and creating a high tech ecosystem that would eventually be spread out to other countries. Basically, the policy that is, you know, the consequence of which are things like CTI League and Cyber Reason and SO Group and all of these things. Right. So 
at some point in the late 1990s, right? She's in charge of ComTouch. ComTouch is going to go public at some point, but there is a lot of controversy about it. And the way its IPO is rescued is from this massive announcement, very conveniently timed announcement of a large investment in the company by Paul Allen from two different sources of his. One being Vulcan Ventures, I think is the name, which is his VC firm, and then another company of his. So what's interesting there is that Paul Allen, a few years later, it was revealed that he was part of this very secretive social network with Epstein and Naomi Campbell and a lot of these other people that have been seen from photographs provided by Virginia Roberts, for example, you know, Naomi Campbell, Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein all partying together and things like that. So that social network, apparently Paul Allen was part of that group. But you also have Bill Gates making a considerable personal investment apparently through the Gates Foundation to this company or purchasing a stake in their stock rather and then Microsoft going through with a purchase. Um, I forget exactly how many thousands of shares in this company, but enough to really put it on the map. And actually, Isabel Maxwell said that it was Microsoft's interest in ComTouch that ended up putting them on the map. And ComTouch was basically running in the background of numerous private multinational corporations as part of their infrastructure of email, right? So it basically gave, if it was used for this, and based on her father's history with the Promise software and all of that, I mean, you can speculate as much, right? You know, an essential backdoor into the emails of anyone that would use it, which also included some government partners and also ended up partnering with one of Microsoft's early Hotmail clients and things like that, right? So, you know, definitely... A lot of espionage value there. It's worth pointing out that Isabel Maxwell also said the weirdest quote about Bill Gates. She has a British accent, sort of a British accent, right, when she normally talks. But she was telling this Guardian reporter about her relationship with Bill Gates. And the guy describes her as purring and using a fake Southern Belle accent when talking about Bill Gates and how she personally convinced him (laughs) <laughs> to give her his money, basically. It's a real trip to read that. For anyone that's interested, it's in my my last article on Isabel Maxwell. It's definitely worth reading it for yourself. But definitely very bizarre, especially when you consider that Isabel Maxwell, for example, her son ended up being made the chief of staff of the Middle East desk at Hillary Clinton's State Department during the Obama administration, which is pretty weird considering the Clintons' relationships to all of these. Uh, Well, you know, to Ghislaine Maxwell specifically in the Epstein scandal, that she would appoint this guy, the son of Isabel Maxwell, who was 25 at the time, right, to this position right when Arab Spring is going on. This is especially significant when we consider the fact that Isabel Maxwell, much more than Ghislaine even, right, is quoted in numerous articles as talking about her great interest in the state of Israel and political Zionism, her close friendships with her quote-unquote father's circle in Israel, including former Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres, who she personally toured around Silicon Valley, Ehud Barak, who was also close to Epstein, numerous other heads of state. She also at one point had a relatively close relationship to the son of Itzhak Shamir, who was also a Israeli Prime Minister that was previously employed by Robert Maxwell. Right. So definitely a tangled web. And so she's very open about her, you know, affiliations. And she in a separate article talks about how her son, Alex, that was put in this key role at the State Department, 
was also very interested in pro-Israel policies. So it's interesting he'd be placed in the State Department at that critical juncture of the Arab Spring and whatnot, in which the State Department, the CIA and Google, among others, were intimately involved, right? It's definitely a very interesting rabbit hole to go down, (laughs) the Maxwell sisters. Of course, the other one on the other side, Christine, actually got involved in creating a company called Kiliad that was essentially just like Promise, essentially a successor to Promise that she co-founded with a active CIA officer. I'm not going to go too much into that today because I'm going to be doing a big report on it. So I don't want to give too much away before I get it out on paper, right? But essentially, this company, Kiliad, is the link between Promise and what is basically Promise today, Palantir, Peter Thiel's company. Because there was a time right after 2001, right after the September 11th attacks, where there was a call to redo big data in the national security state at the FBI and the intelligence community and whatnot. And it was Kiliad, this Christine Maxwell created company that filled that void for a period of several years. It's not around anymore. And of course, Palantir during this period of time where Kiliad was created by Christine Maxwell and the CIA officer named Alan Wade. You know, Palantir is incubated by the CIA with Incutel money and it, you know, Palantir's only client is the CIA until 2008. And then now is one of the largest government contractors in the United States to all 17 intelligence agencies and most of the other federal agencies, to be honest. So definitely really crazy that they haven't gotten more attention, especially considering, you know, that like Christine Maxwell, for example, also very involved in Ghislaine's rather odd, quote-unquote, philanthropic activities like the Terramar Project, Christine Maxwell intimately involved in that. And before the Terramar Project, which of course involves oceanic philanthropy, they say, right? Isabel Maxwell and her last husband, Al Seckel, had attempted to create something called the Blue World Alliance, which was essentially Terramar, years before Terramar happened. And apparently that flopped. It was partnered with the World Economic Forum. And then eventually, you know, I guess became the Terramar project that was run by Christine and Ghislaine Maxwell. Hmm. Wow. Wow. It's impressive you keep all this straight. And when you consider the timeline with Bill Gates and Ghislaine and Epstein, do you think that the Epstein-Ghislaine honeypot blackmail operation was responsible for securing this alliance like the game works where Ghislaine compromises people like Bill Gates and then blackmails them into making deals with her sister's companies and getting this software into critical infrastructure in the United States. I mean, this seems like uh, the one-two punch of the Maxwell family. It's like before we didn't really have a strong catalyst or motivation for Bill Gates being involved with Epstein, but this seems like it. Yeah, well, at least in the earlier years, right? Because, you know, the official narrative, the mainstream narrative, right, is that Bill Gates and Epstein didn't meet until like 2011, even though, like I just said earlier, there's mainstream media articles from 2001 talking about Epstein and Bill Gates being business pals throughout the 1990s, right? So obviously, we don't have all the information about those ties available. There have been considerable efforts to really scrub those from existence. But I think what you laid out is essentially something that very easily could have happened, though. um, I think to an extent, right, you have to look at who the targets of the Epstein sexual blackmail network really were. I think, you know, the most obviously focused on one component of those people that were targeted were U.S. politicians, specifically Bill Clinton, while he was sitting president and also after. 
but also senators like Bill Richardson and George Mitchell, who were notably involved in sensitive Middle East negotiations of interest to Israel, right? So I think that's one side of it, and that's been what most of the focus has been on. But if you look at the links between the Maxwells and also Epstein to technology companies throughout the same period of time, it's definitely significant. And you consider the fact as well that after Epstein left prison the first time, you see him in 2012 begin to rebrand as a tech investor, become very involved in Silicon Valley, and later go on record saying about how he has all this blackmail on Silicon Valley's biggest names. While 2012 is also the year where this is openly admitted now in Israeli media by Israeli government officials and intelligence officials, 2012 is the year where units in Israeli military intelligence, like Unit 8200, and also Mossad as a separate intelligence agency, right, began outsourcing operations that they described as previously being done in-house into essentially front companies, offshoots, privatized offshoots, right, that would then start performing those operations previously done by Mossad or previously done by Unit 8200 or what have you. We know for a fact that one of those companies is Black Cube, right, which was tied to Mossad, but is a private company used to be headed by Mayor Dagan, the former head of Mossad before his death or their chair was the chairman of their board, right? But a lot of these other companies are cybersecurity companies, because if you look at what happens to these Unit 8200 alumni after they leave this military intelligence unit, almost all of them become cybersecurity professionals and their companies get acquired by these much larger companies. Microsoft in particular has been gobbling up these companies for years. Microsoft was the first of the Silicon Valley behemoths to establish an R&D center in Israel. They did so in, I think, 1989, but definitely by the early 90s, they were very involved there. And today you have Unit 8200 alumni in charge of very sensitive and important operations at Microsoft. For example, the head of their entire Azure cloud is a former Unit 8200 guy named Asif Rappaport. And there's just numerous program leads and executives that are all from this particular unit in the Israeli military. Wow, it's just so much, but it starts to paint a pretty clear picture when you go through all these great articles that you've written. And we know that as you said, Christine and Isabel both held senior positions at the Israeli front company that facilitated the promised software sale to U.S. national laboratories at the heart of the country's nuclear program. Like That's what the promised software was involved with, but I'm not sure about any kind of fallout. Was there ever fallout or consequence to that scandal? It's not like we had a, a nuke go off or something, but did they just collect a bunch of data? Was it discovered before it was too late? Like what kind of fallout happened there so that we can kind of maybe draw a parallel to the kind of fallout that could happen now, given the software being integrated into our systems? So I've spoken to a couple different sources about Promise software over the past year or so, and I've definitely learned about some of the systems that were compromised, but I'm not 100% sure that that information is publicly okay to release. But definitely there were military key elements of the U.S. military, as particularly as it relates to nuclear weapons that were compromised by the backdoored version of Promise that was sold to Los Alamos Laboratory by Robert Maxwell. 
during the late 1980s, or I think it was the mid-1980s, actually, which is definitely, you know, this is also the same period of time where the Pollard affair, the Jonathan Pollard affair was going on, and both of those had the same, I guess, head guy back in Israel, you could say, Rafi Aiton was overseeing both of those operations. You know, Robert Maxwell, or the Promise Software and Robert Maxwell's selling of that software around the world that was overseen by ATAN. So in his handler, he was also the handler of Jonathan Pollard, who was taking secrets about U.S. nuclear weapons and all of that from the Navy, I believe specifically. He was like a naval intelligence officer, if I remember correctly. So what's crazy is that a lot of the things that were compromised are known, but remain classified and have not been made public. So we don't actually know the full extent. We just know some of the systems that were compromised Gotcha. from the investigations of, you know, Insla Inc, which originally created the promise software that was later stolen by department of justice and Rafi Aiton and others, and who were involved in the litigation attempting to have some sort of accountability for this theft and the resulting scandal come about later. Of course, this was all essentially covered up by Bill Barr when he was attorney general the first time, and now he's attorney general now. So, you know, some nice continuity there. There was also a report called the Bua Report named after the, I believe it was a senator with that last name that had written that, which was essentially debunking, claimed to debunk the case that illegal activity had taken place in relation to the promised software. Of course, the responses lengthy responses and well-sourced responses to those claims by Insla Inc. and other people, of course, were essentially ignored and Bill Barr just put the lid on that. Hmm. And the Clinton administration, when they came in in like 93, they also made no effort to investigate despite the efforts of Insla Inc. and others, right? So definitely something that was memory hold and covered up. But it's worth pointing out that as it was starting to come out in the late 80s and early 90s, what had transpired with that, you have in 1991, a series of deaths tied to the Promise software scandal. You have Robert Maxwell's death. You have the death of Senator John Towers, or John Towers, sorry, who was the guy that got Maxwell into Los Alamos to make that sale and facilitated a lot of the shadiness of the Promise software and its introduction into sensitive U.S. systems. He died in a rather suspicious plane crash. I think not long after Robert Maxwell died, you also, of course, have the death of Danny Casolaro that year, who was set to publish his book on the so-called octopus, which included a at lengthy section, from what I understand, on the Promise software scandal. And you also have the death of one of his main sources, Alan Standorf, who was found beaten to death in a field during 1991 as well. So it definitely seemed like there was an effort to tie up loose ends to some extent. God, man, it's just like this whole Maxwell operation is just steamrolling all of our politicians, all the big movers and shakers, because you bring them out to the island, you compromise them, and then you just get whatever you want. Just barge your way right in to the big party. It's really insane. And Uh, You also say in one of those articles that Robert Maxwell had seven children and five of them took on different aspects of their father's vast profile. Yes. We talked about Christine and Isabel. Is there anything to say about the other kids that might be into shady stuff? Well, the other kids that are into shady stuff are Kevin and Ian Maxwell. Kevin was essentially the son that was most intimately involved with the financial crimes of Robert Maxwell. So you have basically his three daughters. 
there's two children not really affiliated with the family that had issues with the father or something else that split this clan. But the three daughters that stayed as a part of the clan, I guess you could say, right, all sort of took on these either the promise software elements of that, which they were involved in, Christine was anyway, and Isabel were, while Robert Maxwell was still alive. The front company he used to sell promise to Los Alamos, for example, Christine was put in charge of that company right after that first sale was made to Los Alamos. Subsequent sales were made to other U.S. companies and agencies and all of that, right? And then you also have Isabel Maxwell joining her at some point at that company before the 90s began. So they were already involved in that. And then you have Kevin and Ian being involved in the financial shadiness, including the pension theft scheme of the Daily Mirror Pension Fund and all of these things. They were you know, heavily investigated after Robert Maxwell's death. Kevin and Ian were for their role in those particular financial scandals. They were eventually cleared of wrongdoing, but the report, it's super shady, the stuff that those two were involved in. And because their public reputations were so, I guess you could say, sullied by the associating with their father and that huge investigation and all of that stuff, they kind of laid low for most of the 1990s. But at any given point, you know, like as I mentioned earlier, there were these articles that would sort of follow the family around the Maxwell family and see what the children were up to. Every so often after Robert Maxwell's initial death, they would say things like Kevin and Ian each are the director of 30 companies. And it would say like, and 12 of Kevin's are, you know, facing financial insolvency or something like that. So like, to me, it looks like there were a bunch of these pump and dump companies, sort of, they would like create a company and then move money around and then, oh, it would go bankrupt. And then there'd be a bunch of new companies opened up. And this is something that Robert Maxwell was apparently very good at doing while he was alive, creating lots of trusts and foundations and shell companies with every acquisition of a different company. He would like spin off a bunch of smaller companies and move money around and all this stuff. Apparently, that was one of his talents, (laughs) I guess you could say. And that's something that Kevin and Ian appeared to be involved with significantly. What's interesting, though, is that when ComTouch was going on, right, Isabel Maxwell was doing this ComTouch stuff that was being backed by Microsoft, you have Kevin Maxwell buying this company called Telemont, which is very involved in U.S. telecommunications infrastructure. And that's interesting because in the same period of time as when you have Amdocs, <laughs> right, being also very involved in telecommunications infrastructure in the U.S., which is another Israeli intelligence link company that was spying on U.S. federal agencies in the late 90s and up into and through 9-11. Jeez. Man, what a wild family to have been born into. It yeah. seems like from the get-go, <laughs> it's really tough to clear that karma. You're pretty much baked right into it. But <laughs> this is something you also mentioned earlier, which is smart cities. And we have been concerned about smart cities for a lot of reasons. But the work you've done here just adds a whole nother layer to why we should be concerned. You wrote this piece entitled, Media Ignores Israel Connection to Eric Schmidt's push for New York smart cities. And it feels like this is part of the same agenda of Israeli software companies gaining control of critical infrastructure. Uh, Here's a quote I liked where you say, with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo recently announcing that former head of Google Eric Schmidt would lead an effort to reimagine post-pandemic life in the state, media reports have failed to note that the groundwork for that reimagining 
was laid last year and intimately involves the state of Israel. So when people say pandemic, not only were they running simulations more than just event 201, right? but they're also laying the groundwork for this stuff. And this is really scary to me. I mean, it already was this smart city stuff, but this is just another layer. Right. So this agreement that was hammered out last year, the U.S. side of the negotiation was actually a guy that's a key member of a massive pro-Israel lobby organization in New York, right? So that's kind of a conflict of interest. But anyway, basically what it does, it claims to be this collaboration between the U.S. and Israel to build smart cities, but it only builds smart cities in New York State, not in Israel, which is kind of weird if you're going to call it collaborative, right? But basically what it does is that Starting next year, New York City is going to begin the implementation of five smart cities. The locations for those five smart cities are set to be decided in the latter half of this year. I think they'll be announced in December, if I remember correctly. But the decisions are going to start being made sometime between September next month, right, and December. So that definitely is an agenda that we will see rolling out in New York and with a large boost, I guess you could say, from these Israeli companies that have, even before this deal with New York, were lobbying very heavily to be a key part of U.S. smart city infrastructure. One of these companies, of course, is Card by 911, which wants to be the 911 call system of smart cities in the future. It is a Unit 8200 company that was funded by Ehud Barak and Jeffrey Epstein and Peter Thiel and is definitely a very suspect company, I would argue, because it has a pre-crime functionality where essentially you call 911 with your smartphone and it essentially pulls all this data off your smartphone and gets access to your camera, your microphone and all of this stuff and uses all the data it takes from your phone to analyze your behavior and determine if you will be near to the victim of or the perpetrator of a crime at some point in the future. Their ambitions for smart cities is to have smart devices call 911 for you so that people don't have to call 911 anymore. The devices themselves will know when to alert authorities. God. And we're already seeing so much ratting on each other this year, just normal citizens. Yeah, that's depressing. You're tattletailing on people yeah. over masks and gatherings. <laughs> it is Really sad. Turning off power to houses that do have parties. I mean, scale that up. It's not going to be just a house getting their power shut off. It could be a whole city under these conditions. It's like really scary to give this much power to just the hands of a few. And this quote was also interesting where you say Cuomo at the time also said that New York's incubator programs for startups, an initiative with funds exceeding five million, would, quote, implement a new focus on Israeli companies as opposed to local companies. Like, what the hell? It sounds like they got Cuomo by the balls, too. I mean, what's going on right now in New York City is, well, New York State, but New York City particularly, is very instructive, I think, to people who like to argue that a lot of these Unit 8200 companies have no ulterior motives. They are... Companies tied to Unit 8200 and also venture capital funds that are linked to the Israeli government are, thanks to Michael Bloomberg, now set to run these cybersecurity centers for New York City that will be used to benefit the state, I guess. And they were supposed to be U.S. and Israeli companies. But of course, it's 
all Israelis in charge of choosing what companies get funded or are integrated into these cybersecurity centers. And it tends to favor one over the other dramatically, right? Then you have Cuomo coming out and saying that, oh, we're going to favor these companies over U.S. companies. I mean, it really destroys the myth they try and use to sell these programs that it's collaboration, that it's a partnership. There's going to be a 50-50 split in the spoils, right? That's what you would assume from a lot of the PR that they hand out. But unfortunately, when we look at what's going on in practice, it's not exactly what's happening, is it? No, no. And as I was reading all your articles, I went and I looked up USAID to Israel over the years. And obviously, that's going to play a role. But <laughs> yeah, it's apparently crazier than I thought. I mean, we knew it was bad. But the US sends them about $3 billion a year going back decades. Right. We give aid to dozens of countries with an average of $500 million, But Israel is far and away number one on the planet. And Israel is only a country of 9 million people. Yep. So it really starts to feel weird. And it's like this kind of blackmail operation and Epstein operation leading back to Israeli intelligence, this is going to keep that money flow coming forever. You think Bill Clinton's going to stand up and say something about it? You think yeah. Donald Trump's going to stand up and say something about it? <laughs> Every one of the politicians that's been captured just rolls over, exposes the soft underbelly of this country, and is just taking our tax dollars, which are already way too high, we're paying way too much, and just shipping it overseas because they got caught with a kid. It is crazy. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. Yeah. <laughs> now it's up to $3.8 billion a year. Um, and it's set to expand. That was supposed to be the absolute maximum when Obama negotiated this memorandum of understanding with Israel that they, okay, we'll give you more than $3 billion, but that's as high as we go. Well, Israel is now lobbying for that to be the new minimum. And that all future years should be 3.8 billion or more per year, which is, of course, a very staggering, very high amount of money. <laughs> I mean, it's honestly mind boggling. I mean, you have something like Epstein, right, where it was known that he was compromising politicians on behalf of an intelligence agency, right? And that particular intelligence agency happens to be Israel's military intelligence agency. And of course, a lot of that money is for military aid, which of course goes to Israeli military intelligence. It just seems rather convenient for it to remain unacknowledged for this long by even mainstream media. But, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of things they should acknowledge that they don't. So, you know, it's kind of a rhetorical question at this point. Too true. Yes. So, you know, aid to Israel is something that is bipartisan, right? which essentially means that, you know, it's something that the entire swamp agrees about for a particular reason. But I definitely think that blackmail is one of the ways that Israel was able to see the amount of aid it receives from the United States balloon considerably over the past few decades. Right, right. And not only are they extracting billions of dollars a year, but they're also doing these little false flag kind of things and saying, hey, look at what Iraq did, look at what Iran is doing. Right. And they have the big behemoth of the U.S. military on some kind of leash to just take out whoever Israel considers to be their biggest threats. Again, we pay for it in money and in blood. So the aid money, quote unquote, isn't even enough. They still have this whole other aspect of the program running. And if there's any truth to them being behind 9-11, add it to the pile, along with the chaotic, expensive shitstorm 
that was caused by us being in the Middle East for more than a decade after that. And this whole thing starts to just sound so staggering. Well, remember, it was Netanyahu was one of the people that went in front of Congress, right? And was like, if you invade Iraq, positive reverberations for the whole region. And now, of course, people still listen to him when he say things like bombing Iran will have positive reverberations for the entire region. Of course, it's been no secret that a lot of top Israeli national security officials want the U.S. to strike Iran and basically have the battle be fought by the U.S. and Iran with Israel coming in to help later, but they want the U.S. to make the first move, right? This is pretty much, it's pretty much an admitted policy. I mean, you have Mayor Dagan, who, like I said, former head of Mossad, going on 60 Minutes, saying that the U.S. needs to bomb Iran first. Pretty much in your face, you know, admission of that. Part of the plan there is to provoke Iran into doing something that can then be justified by people like Mike Pompeo or Mike Pence and all these intense Iran hawks in the White House to justify U.S. military action against Iran that would presumably result in some sort of war. Of course, Israel views Iran as its greatest rival in the region. It wants hegemony for its alliance. You know, the U.S., Israel, now Saudi, Emirati, you know, alliance in the Middle East. It wants hegemony. For that, of course, Iran and Syria, which was targeted by the U.S. and also Israel, you know, from 2011 on, was also one of the targets of that. Lebanon, specifically, you know, Hezbollah-aligned Lebanon, also been a target in there and facets of Iraq, right? So, you know, we're just in that sort of late stage, I guess you could say, of what's really been a decades-long policy playing out. 9-11, of course is a key turning point there with the subsequent invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, countries that both border Iran. And of course, you know, the admission from people like Wesley Clark that there were plans to go after what, like seven countries in 10 years or something like that, with Iran being the crown jewel, I guess you could say, of that list, the one they're going to target at the end after targeting all the other ones, most of which have been targeted by intervention of subtypes since then largely to the benefit of Israel over the United States. In the case of Syria, for example, I mean, you have leaked State Department emails where Hillary Clinton says the best thing we can do for Israel is help overthrow Assad, essentially. So, I mean, that's pretty much in your face, right? And as I mentioned earlier, during that period of time where Clinton wrote emails like that, the guy that was the chief of staff at her Middle East desk is the son of Isabel Maxwell. Totally insane. (laughs) It is. It is. And we were just so lucky to have you on this case. And Whitney, this has just been amazing. A lot of this stuff just blows me away. I am so lucky to know you. You are one of my favorite journalists working today. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're in high demand. Before I cut you loose, tell people where they can read these articles, your social media stuff, and any upcoming projects you think they should know about. All right. So for social media, I'm only currently on Twitter. You can follow me at underscore Whitney Webb. I'm currently writing for my own site, which is Unlimited Hangout. I also contribute to The Last American Vagabond, where you can find some of my most recent article on emergent biosolutions, for example. Let's see a couple other. Pro- I have some some more investigative works on the Maxwell sisters, some of which I went over today, but of course, more detail. I'll be putting some articles out on that in the future. I have my book on the Epstein series coming down the pike at some point, hopefully by the end of this year. And, you know, 
I have a podcast that I'll be relaunching on the Rockfin platform probably another week or so. So look for that for those that are interested. And yeah, that's about it. Thank you. Awesome. You got it. And it is a really well-designed website. Unlimitedhangout.com should really be on everyone's daily reads. And just thanks so much. I hope you keep doing what you do for a long time. I love checking in with you and I'm scared for the future, but take care and thanks again. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Well, sadate, cool cats and kittens. The triumphant return of the great Whitney Webb. She has such an excellent recall for the work that she does, but it's so detailed and layered that you really are doing yourself a disservice if you're not reading her work on the regular. She is very consistent with putting stuff out. But this was a real treat to get to share this work with you. It very well could be the biggest story there is when you loop in the other Maxwell sisters and what seems to be a major campaign from Israel to export their software systems to whoever they can and become so integrated that cities, nations, whatever, are actually reliant on their management of those resources. Because everything has software-based infrastructure and logistics management. Nuclear facilities, water treatment plants, the electrical grid. Of course, smart cities, as we talked about. And everything is so centralized that if you license out this software in New York or L.A., there's so much more value in that to a foreign nation than almost anything I can think of. It's putting a whole city in the palm of your hand and just navigating through that illusion of sovereignty. But as long as we keep those billions in tax dollars flowing into them, I'm sure everything will be fine. Kind of like we're being held hostage and paying a ransom, right? But many of us sort of realized that Epstein was not the most important person in that overall honeypot process. And now that is even more clear. As is what the network is getting out of compromising these American politicians and the tech elite like Bill Gates. And it is pretty scary. I don't want to say scary, but it's very concerning how vulnerable we might be. In the words of Joe Biden, this is a big fucking deal. In fact, there is an episode of THC from last year with Jeremy Roth Cushell. It's titled The Zionist Network, The Talpiot Program, and Kill Switch Diplomacy. And he talked about this very thing. Kill Switch Diplomacy is a great term for it. He spoke so fast and looped in so much that I'm not sure if any Maxwells were mentioned or not, but it pairs quite nicely with today's interview, that's for sure. But it's one of the major reasons that we don't need 80-year-old presidents and 90-year-old Supreme Court justices. Just let it go, you animals. We are deep in a digital age where if our leaders are going to sell out our sovereignty and security, illusionary as it might be in the first place, I at least want them to understand the severity of what they're doing. Not that they would make any other choice if they're presented with a 
video of them entertaining a harem of 12-year-olds. But Biden and Trump probably can't set up a Wi-Fi password, yet they're going to be making the very deals that determine how deep in the pocket we really are when it comes to this stuff, if it's not already too late. It's nice that there's been at least a little resistance to Chinese technology running the whole 5G grid thing with Huawei. At least it's being brought up that, hey, maybe we can't outsource everything like this. We're going to give too much power to the hands of a few. I guess a tale as old as time, but worry less about TikTok and more about who in Silicon Valley has been on that plane to Little St. James. But either way, let Whitney know how much you appreciate her. She is going deeper down the rabbit hole than most dare and she should be thanked profusely. As always, if you liked the first hour of the show, sign up for Plus to hear the second hour, as well as hundreds of great shows in the archive. Keep any MP3s you download while you're a member. I don't pull them away when your subscription ends like the big boys do, and I wouldn't know how to do that anyway. But today in the show, we talked about another Israeli company we should... Look out for this one involved in directing U.S. lockdown policy and contact tracing protocol. We talked about DARPA's sketchy history of experiments and research into coronaviruses and bioweapons. We talked about DARPA's Insect Allies program, Emergent Biosolutions vaccine manufacturing, and Whitney's interview with Epstein victim Maria Farmer. All very important stuff as well. One tip we talked about is that if you're trying to have the COVID vaccine conversation with people that you care about, just cite the scandals and the history of some of these leading companies like Emergent Biosolutions or Johnson & Johnson. You don't have to debate vaccine science specifically, and I think that's a tip worth reiterating. So the advice still stands that we have to work our way off the teat of system dependence We have to have a better lead on quality resources. Easier said than done, I know. But you're only going to be as worried about this stuff as you are reliant on it. So think about that, Jack, and I'll catch you next time. I've done my part. Your move, infrastructure infiltrators, billionaire blackmailers, and villains of the global vaccination agenda. Your fucking move. I won't take it. Money got the Fed in your head, currency.
You'll find me in the bunker. bunker. 